Hey Permies, welcome to Journey into Permaculture. Vincent here, your permaculture guide. This episode will focus on the Permaculture Design Manual by Bill Mollison. This book is worth every penny. I would grade it a 5 out of 5 stars. No doubt this needs to be in your library. This is the quintessential book that every permaculture designer will need. It's an intricate and deep book, and it's like a manual for permaculture, or you could liken it to a manual of operating an airplane. You're going to need to know different aspects, how they work, such as running the engine or running the flaps, the landing gear, and knowing how all of that works together. This is not quite a book for enjoyable cover-to-cover reading. It's a manual, so it can be a little dry, but is packed with information. One chapter is like a book in and itself. Make sure to check the back of each chapter as there is a designer's checklist. This is very useful for checks for understanding so that you can understand what you really need to get out of each chapter and you could use it as a checklist for what you're utilizing and implementing within your own design. We're going to use the chapters or the table of contents in the book to break down this episode and understand what each chapter is about. Let's go ahead and begin with chapter one. The first chapter is an introduction to the idea of permaculture. The next chapter, chapter 2, is all about concepts and themes of design. This really lays the foundation of the book, and it gives definitions and understanding to permaculturalists of what yields, products, what niches are, in a more permaculture-minded way. This chapter explains the need to understand how to design. Chapter 3, titled The Methods of Design, has the shortest check for understanding, but people tend to want to gravitate to this chapter. They want to go right into the depths of how does this work? How does this design happen? But it's actually a simple approach where analyzation of slope, orientation of your location, the use of, of your position latitudinally, and the elements available are all in a good permaculture design. Ultimately, you will fixate that in a zonal design as well. There are zones one through five, and you could consider zone zero as what is within the house. So chapter three is often where or everyone is excited to jump to. However, chapter two is more important in understanding the concepts and the themes of design more so than the methods. Ultimately, when you understand permaculture design, you're going to have all this built-up understanding and knowledge. You're going to make decisions that you make based on individual situations. Ultimately, you're going to have to trust yourself and make educated guesses based on your knowledge. Permaculture is very flexible, but it really works on the knowledge and understanding of how to fit everything together, which leads perfectly into chapter four, pattern understanding. This chapter is sort of like the glue of the book. It's going to glue together patterns and understanding that we need to really have a whole system design or a whole pattern understanding from the micro to the macro of the universe. Quite literally, everything and anything 
is rather connected and is patternized. Once you understand that, things start gluing together. Natural patterns will always happen no matter what, and we need to work within the natural patterns. Suddenly, you will begin to understand this chapter more as you gain more knowledge of permaculture. These chapters, 1 through 4, focus on design and patterns, which is the most important out of the entire book. This really encompasses a permaculture design certification. All other chapters are going to build and reinforce the first four chapters. Moving on to chapter 5, climatic factors. This gives you a need to understand your climate, your microclimate, and the climate around it. So it's going to break down the understanding of needing to know your altitude and elevation, how far away you are from the ocean, your latitude, various biomes around the world, or more importantly, your biome. This chapter will have you considering weather patterns and extremes of weather in your area. You'll need to understand and design your space based on the weather and the extreme weather that you'll face. If you're going to have hurricanes that come by or so often, you'll need to design and have that into consideration, amongst other extreme weather situations. Chapter 6 is titled Trees and Their Energy Transactions. This chapter focuses on trees and their immense importance in a permaculture design. Trees are capable of changing climate that they're around. Trees in the Amazon basin literally make it rain. They build condensation and make the rain occur over themselves. Trees are capable of changing the weather, and they're also capable of creating a microclimate in your space. Chapter 7, titled Water, focuses entirely on this element. Water can be created by the climate, specifically trees. As you can notice the pattern, each chapter is going to build upon itself into a greater understanding of the permaculture design. So we have trees, and then we'll build on trees with water. You'll learn in this chapter 7 that you'll need to prioritize water in your design. This is the major element aside from carbon. You can't grow anything without water. Chapter 8 is soil. We need to look into the permaculture design in increasing soil quantity and soil quality. This is the opposite of traditional agriculture, as it destroys soil, doesn't keep soil in mind at all, and fails in respecting the soil. We need to go beyond the thought of organic we need to think more in eco-retentive, soil-creative designs. Chapter 9, Earthworks or Earth Shaping. This chapter brings in the idea of terraforming or reconstructing earth surfaces in rather minimal ways to begin positive benefits of the permaculture design. Earth's resources can be found within the soil, such as sands, clays, gravel, rocks, or various layered strata of the earth, we can use these various resources to benefit our design. Humans are terraformers, ultimately. We've been terraforming the earth for centuries, if not longer. We need to consider positive earthworks and improve the landscape when the machines are turned off. Nowadays, we can use machines to our advantage, and we're able to terraform the earth in faster ways than we ever have before. However, we don't want to utilize the machines forever. We only want to use them so that we can benefit our earth and have benefits for lifetimes beyond the machine's use. As in, turn off the machines and the benefits continue to build thereafter through terraforming. Moving into chapter 10, the next three chapters are about climate. Chapter 10 focuses on the tropics where there is a lot of humidity and ultimately in this 
space, there's little to no food storage, which is unique to the tropical area. As everything's growing all year around, you don't necessarily need to store food if you can grow all year. There's lots of degradation in this climate as humidity causes degradation. Chapter 11 is drylands strategies. Drylands happens to be one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult places to design. This is the largest chapter in the book. It's very complicated to grow in dry lands. There's lots of diversity and there's lots of fertility. The dry air doesn't cause things to decompose as rapidly as a humid environment in the tropics. This chapter title includes strategy because you need to know exactly when and why to make your moves in your space. Timing of events is key in a drylands area, and you need to be ready to make those moves at the notice of the environment. Chapter 12 will cover cold climates. You'll learn various understandings of the cold climate and the intricacies involved. However, out of these three chapters, chapter 11 is the most complicated and diverse out of the tropics, drylands, and cold climate. Moving on to chapter 13, aquaculture. This is Also, a very important chapter to consider, humans have been practicing aquaculture for centuries, but we've actually really fallen off of aquaculture because of Western culture. We have really leaned towards consumerism and specialization away from farming. So the understanding and knowledge of aquaculture has really fallen off as we have specialized in various other places like technology and manufacturing, yet our leaning on those that have stayed farmers who have really gone towards traditional mindsets that have been influenced by corporations. So ultimately, things like aquaculture fell through the cracks as we have developed as a civilization, or you could consider a lack thereof in a way. When we consider water, everything benefits from water systems. There's no doubt that aquaculture benefits other systems as we bring it into the land as well. Aquaculture brings more protein than land-based protein. So if you have an aquaculture system, you're growing more protein than, say, your other protein sources that live on the land, like poultry and other animals. It's more than just about protein. Water brings diversity. Aquaculture is more than just growing fish. It's also growing various aquatic plants and prawns and other species that we tend to consume in the water system. While Western culture has lost this understanding and the benefits, aquaculture systems in the Western culture are toxic and usually found in industrial farms, mostly farming ocean systems. You'll learn about the Chinapa in this chapter, which is the most productive and sustainable system ever created by humans. 50% of this system is water-based. Today, humans are still rediscovering and regrowing with this aquaculture system. Asian areas have the most traditional aquaculture still happening today. There are more ponds with aquaculture than chickens or pigs in Vietnam, for example. There's a lot to learn from these areas that have still used aquaculture throughout the years. More or less, their society didn't forget about aquaculture as we move towards industrialization around the globe. The book finishes with chapter 14, which is the strategies of an alternative global nation. You could consider this as like the Rubik's Cube of the book. This really explains how to set up communities, how we should exchange and barter, how we should consider a system in a finite world rather than our current worldview where everything is infinite with constant growth 
This chapter tries to help explain how we build up in value of soil and life systems, yet make things less expensive. Chapter 14 promotes how we should share our experiences, our successes, and failures therein. We'll learn how to identify who you can coexist with, as in there are some people you might not be able to live with as easily as others. People today really don't have that capability. We don't really consider that sort of community depth. A tolerance of community is a strength in differences. This chapter also covers the appropriate aid for the developing world, as in how we can really develop these nations that are still developing in the industrial sense, and what are the appropriate ways we should focus on. Now, I only gave a brief outlook of the table of contents. There's so much depth to this book, I cannot quite explain it all in one episode. Stay tuned on Journey into Permaculture, and I'll explain each chapter more in-depth as we progress. See you on the next one.